let's, uh, let's get into our, our text here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're in the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to be covering verses 8 through 11 of chapter 5. Oops. So I'm going to read our text. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. So starting in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself through the scriptures. And thank you that we can study them openly and freely here. Thanks to you and thanks to the men and women who have given their lives for that freedom. So right now we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to your truth. We pray that you would just cleanse our hearts and purify our hearts right now as we come before you. And we give this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I mentioned, Bruce did an amazing job presenting the first seven verses of this chapter. You might recall that Bruce showed us that, that the Apostle Paul divides the world into two categories, right? Day people and night people. Day people refers to those of us who are in Christ, right? Believers of the God of the Bible. Those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's day people. Night people refers to everyone else. Those who either do not believe or those who do believe but reject the gospel, refuse to repent, refuse to make Jesus Lord of their life. That was me for over 10 years. I was in that latter camp for over 10 years. I heard the gospel... I understood it, I believed it, but I rejected it, flat out rejected it for over 10 years. So in our passage today, Paul continues to speak about day people and night people, and this isn't a new concept. This is not a term that starts with Paul, this, ter- this concept of day people and night people. In Psalm 107, in verses 10 and 11, we read this. It says, there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. This describes those who are night people, right? They dwell in darkness. They dwell in the shadow of death. They are prisoners in misery, and they are chained because they rebelled against God and rejected his counsel. They were contemptuous toward their creator, just like I was, just like we all were at some point, right? But then down in verse 13 of that same psalm, we read this. It says, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. 
Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Bruce actually mentioned that same passage last week. And and this then is an illustration of the terrible bondage of being in the night, being in the darkness, and the deliverance from sin, and and the deliverance from rebellion towards God that, that the Lord extends because of his grace and his loving kindness. And so we find that God has the desire to bring people out of the night and into the day, to make day people out of night people. Isaiah speaks of this desire of God's to bring people into the light when he wrote about the Messiah some 700 years before the Messiah's birth. Right? In chapter 9, verse 2, he says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And what is this light that will shine on them and, and, and shut out the darkness? Well, down in verse 6, he says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, the child which Isaiah is referring to is Jesus Christ. God's heart has always been to bring people out of the darkness and into the light. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish just just that on the cross. So we just read Isaiah 9-2, and in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, Matthew actually quotes that verse. He says, The people who who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And at that point, Jesus says, I'm here, the light has dawned. And we read in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we see that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Lord desires to rescue people out of the darkness and into the light, to turn night people into day people. Now, how does this take place? How does a night person become a day person? If Jesus is the one who does it, what is the the means, what is the vehicle for that transaction to take place? Well, when Paul is giving his testimony in front of King Agrippa over in Acts 26, he describes his conversion on the Damascus Road and and how Jesus calls him into ministry. And in verse 18 of Acts 26, Paul says that Jesus tells him that his job is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified, now watch this, by faith in me. By faith in Jesus Christ. To be rescued out of darkness and into the light, to become a day person, you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. 
according to Ephesians 2. Now, why is, why is Paul making this contrast here at the end of this letter? Well, as, as Bruce mentioned last week, he, he wanted to encourage the Thessalonians. Paul was trying to encourage the Christians in Thessalonica. Remember back at the end of chapter 4, the very last verse, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And now here in our passage, in verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. You see, the people in Thessalonica, the Christians in, in Thessalonica, they were doing great, right? We've been, we've been learning this whole time that they, they were a great church, they were obedient, they were doing very well as a church. And they had a healthy fear of the wrath of God. They had a healthy fear of God's judgment. Evidently, they also had a certain level of understanding about the day of the Lord. And we see that in, in chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about the day of the Lord. They knew about the day of the Lord. He just didn't want them to be uninformed about it. See, they were, they were confused about something. They were wondering if a Christian died before Jesus came back, would that person miss the rapture? The rapture is described in, in chapter 4, and in verses 16 and 17, Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and to be with the Lord forever. So a Christian who dies before the coming of Christ, he says, will not miss the rapture. And so now in chapter 5, he comforts them even further by the fact that there is a clear distinction between day people and night people. God knows who the day people are, and God knows who the night people are. And the Thessalonian church could be comforted by that fact, and so can we. So can we. If you're a day person, you have nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. You're going to be in heaven with your Lord forever. And so Paul says... In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, we are of the day. And he says that we should be encouraged because we are different, right? We're distinct. We're different from the world. We're different from the night people. And we're distinct in three ways. We're distinct in three ways. We're distinct in our nature, our conduct, and our destiny. Nature, conduct, and destiny. So first, our nature. Our nature is that we're day people, right? We're day people. We are not in the domain of darkness. We are in the domain of light. In other words, our identity is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And so our nature should reflect the nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, he was speaking of false teachers when he said this, but In Matthew 7, he said, you will know them by their fruit. Speaking of false teachers. And speaking of Christians, Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Day people. Since this is true, since our nature is that of day people, he says in verse 8, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
He's saying, let's be, let's be watchful. Let's be, let's be alert so that we don't fall into the traps of the deed of the night. Be alert, he says. This idea of being sober is to be, is to be alert, to be vigilant. Don't allow the schemes of the devil to overcome you. Be alert. And if you do that, you will have great assurance that of your salvation, and you'll know in your heart that you have nothing to fear. I love that he tells us to be, to be sober, to be alert, to be watchful. It, it pictures a soldier on duty, right? Which is appropriate for, for this weekend. And we know this. We know he's picturing a soldier on duty because he immediately moves into a description of a Roman soldier. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, it, it's not... It's not all that important to get into the details about those analogies. I did some studying on those analogies, and it's fascinating stuff to me, but it's not really important that we, that we get into detail about that. But what is important is that we understand what they represent. Right? The breastplate represents faith and love, and the helmet represents the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope. If you're someone who reads the New Testament on a regular basis, then you'll probably know that these three components of the Christian life, faith, love, and hope, these three components are frequently linked together. It happens quite a bit, actually. There's a familiar verse in 1 Corinthians 13, and verse 13, which says, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But, But the greatest of these is love. These are the three supreme components of the Christian life. Now, what I, what I want us to see, and this is very important, what I want us to see is that these three things, faith, love, and hope, are the three greatest defenses that we have against temptation. Faith, hope, and love are the three greatest defenses we have against temptation. You'll notice that the breastplate and the helmet they're used by a soldier for defense. They're used as a defensive tool, right? So he's saying that if the breastplate is faith and love, and the helmet is the hope of salvation, then he's saying faith, love, and hope are a tool of defense against temptation. These are gifts from God to help us combat the temptation to sin. And so here is the next manner in which we're distinct, our conduct. Our nature and now our conduct. You see, a person's nature, a person's identity, is always going to manifest itself in their conduct. If I'm a night person, a child of wrath, my behavior will reflect that. If I'm a day person, a child of God, my behavior will reflect that. And so the way to combat temptation to sin is through faith, love, and hope. And I'm going to show you how in a moment. So let me, let me ask this. Are you concerned about your conduct? Are you concerned about dealing with sin in your life? Are you concerned about overcoming temptation? I hope so. And if you are... These three things, faith, hope, and love, are an absolute must in your defense against temptation. 
So first, faith. Faith is a defense against temptation. How? Well, sin, I'm going to be a little bit blunt here, sin is a result of not trusting God. Sin is a result of not trusting God. When we sin, we're not believing God. We're not trusting his promises. We're not trusting his character, his omnipotence. We can trust his promises. We can trust his promises. Just go through the Old Testament and you'll see promise after promise after promise being kept by God. Right? He told Abraham back in Genesis, he told him that he'll multiply his descendants and make them a great nation and that he'll bring them into the promised land. And so through you know, slavery in Egypt and disobedience by all the kings and exile into Babylon... Through all that, God preserved the nation Israel and made them a great nation in preparation for the coming Messiah. He promised King David in 1 Samuel 12. He said that he will raise up David's seed and he will establish his throne in his kingdom forever. And of course, Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that promise. And when Jesus told his disciples repeatedly that he would die on the cross and then be resurrected three days later, he did just that. And that promise was kept when the tomb was empty. You can trust the Lord. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing overwhelms him. No one can defeat him. Jesus overcame death. Nothing is too difficult for him to overcome. He has a plan. And he is unfolding his perfect and sovereign plan. And it's right on schedule. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. And so if I believe God, if I trust him, that he always keeps his promises, that he has a perfect plan, then no matter what the temptations the enemy puts in my path, I won't succumb to those temptations, right? Now, the reality is that we all sin, right? Even though we're in Christ, we sin. We don't want to, but occasionally we do succumb to those temptations. And so I thank God for 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for 1 John 1, 9. And the longer we walk... In the faith, the less we will sin and will become more and more like Christ. That's called sanctification. But when we do sin, we're not trusting God. For example, and I'm I'm guilty of this one sometimes, if I worry, what I'm saying is, God, I know you said you're sovereign, I know you said you're in control. And I know that you told me that there is nothing you can't overcome. But you know what? I just don't believe you. I'm going to worry. You're not trusting God. I have to admit, when my mother was getting more and more sick, I worried. But he says, I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I have a plan. And there's nothing I can't overcome. And praise the Lord that he saved my mom less than a week before she died. 
Here's another example. When I lie, I'm saying, God, I know you said you'd bless me if I obey you, but in order to get what I want, I have to lie. I don't trust your promise. God says not to engage in sexual immorality. If I decide to engage in sexual immorality outside of the bonds of marriage, I'm saying, God, you told me that if I refrain from committing fornication that you'll bless my marriage relationship, but you're wrong. I believe I'll be more fulfilled if I engage in fornication, either before marriage or outside of marriage. I don't believe you, God. God says, obey me and I'll bless you. Satan says, do this and it'll feel good. Who do you trust? Do this and you'll have fun. Who do you trust? Faith. Faith puts up that shield. Faith in the promises of God puts up a shield against temptation. So there's another side to that. What's what's the other part of this shield, this breastplate? It's love. The breastplate of faith and love. So here's the other part of it. I'm going to be blunt again. All sin is an indication of a failure to love God. All sin is an indication of a failure to love God. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by love? Well, Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment is, he said in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. What that means, to paraphrase, is that we are to love God with all that we are, with all aspects of our being. We are to devote ourselves to God completely as a supreme object of our affection. Let me say that again. We are to devote ourselves to God completely as the supreme object of our affection. And we are to delight in the Lord. We're to delight in Him. Psalm 37 says this. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. Delight in and devotion to God as the supreme object of our affection. Think about it. Whoever is the supreme object of your affection is going to control what you do. Right? You'll, you'll see this in human relationships sometimes, but more often it plays itself out this way. Right? If, if I sin, what I'm saying is, God, you're not the supreme object of my affection. I am the supreme object of my affection. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what gives me pleasure. At least temporarily gives me pleasure. We just read what Jesus said was the great commandment. Now let's read what else he said in Matthew 22. He said the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. So what does that mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I make sure all my basic needs are met. I, I make sure my desires are satisfied as much as I can. 
I don't intentionally do anything that's going to hurt myself or, or make me sad or make me angry. And that's how we're to treat our neighbors. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know what Jesus says after he gives the two great commandments in Matthew twenty-two forty? 40? He says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The whole law depends on love. If I love God, I don't need a law that says, don't make any graven images. I just won't make any. If I love God, I don't need a law that says, don't take his name in vain. I I just won't do it. I don't need a law that says, love your neighbor like yourselves, because I'm going to love the people that God loves. I don't need laws that say, do this and don't do that, because I will naturally want to do the things that please God. And so the breastplate that protects us from temptation is faith and love. And then Paul mentions another aspect of this of protection that a soldier must have, and this is the helmet of the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. Someone says, well, if I'm in Christ, don't I already have salvation? Why do I need to hope for it? I already have it. Well, that's a good point. But what he's referring to here is our glorification. Our glorification. This hope is in the future aspect of our salvation, where we will be given new heavenly bodies, and these bodies are are going to be redeemed and glorified, and we become sinless and perfected just like Christ when we're in heaven. This is the final stop in our salvific road, the road to salvation. Remember um, a few weeks ago, Pastor Mark laid out our path as believers, right? He said, first, we're regenerated. There's There's regeneration. There should be a slide for you guys. There we go. First, we're regenerated, right? Regenerated means we've been given a new heart. We're made a new creation. And and we're we're given the ability to turn towards God and repent of our sin. And then we're justified. Justification, right? So now we've been forgiven of our sins, and Jesus took the penalty for our sins, and God sees us as righteous. We're justified. Then sanctification. And this is, as we, lo- as we walk with the Lord, we become more and more like Christ. Sanctification. And finally, we're glorified when we're in heaven. We're glorified. And this component of being glorified in heaven, that is the hope of eternal glory, the hope of salvation that Paul's referring to here. Does that make sense? If you have the hope of eternal glory that you're going to be in heaven with your Lord forever, then you're going to conduct yourself in a way that reflects your identity. If you have the assurance that you will see Jesus face to face and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, in response, we will necessarily behave in a way that honors that truth. We're day people. Our defense to the darkness and the deeds of the night is faith in God's promises, an intense love for him and for people, and the hope and assurance of our glorification when we see him face to face. So we're different. We're distinct. We don't look like the world. 
I, I tell my kids all the time, when I'm taking them to school or when I'm sending them out in the world, I, I tell them, we're different. This family is different. Our family's not going to look like the families that you see at school. We're different. If your life looks like the world, if your life looks like the lives of, of those in the world, I would encourage you, lovingly encourage you to examine your heart. Ask God to reveal to you where your heart is. Don't lose that assurance of your future eternal glory. Examine your heart and see whether you're in the faith. That, we're actually commanded to do that in 1 Corinthians 13. And so Paul says that eternal glory is our destiny. This eternal glory is our destiny. And this is the third aspect of our distinction in Christ, our destiny. And this is the most glorious of all the distinctions. Our destiny is eternal glory. He says in verse 9, look at verse 9. He says that God, this is marvelous, God has not destined us for wrath. Amen. When we have the shield of faith and love and the the helmet of the hope of glory in our hearts, the resulting pattern of obedience, not, not perfect obedience, but a pattern of obedience in our life, that is proof that our destiny is not wrath. Our destiny is not the wrath of God. What a marvelous truth. God has not destined us for wrath. He said the same thing in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. It's not that the wrath isn't coming. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. The wrath is coming. The wrath is coming to those who don't know the Lord, to those who die in their sins, to those who haven't repented and put their faith and trust in Christ. But he says, for those of us who are in Christ, Jesus rescues us from the wrath that will come. We're not destined for wrath. Jesus and his work on that cross rescues us from that wrath. It's like in the days of Noah, right? When Noah, for 120 years, was building that ark and preaching righteousness. For 120 years, he preached righteousness. And he warned people of the wrath to come. And not a single person heeded the warning. The only people that got on that ark were Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Eight people in the whole world heeded the warning. And the rest suffered the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming. God talks about that throughout the Bible. There's in a lot of places. I'll give you a few. Matthew 3.7. John 3.36. Several times in the book of Romans. Ephesians 5.6. Colossians 3.6. All over the book of Revelation. God talks about the wrath to come. And those are just a few. And in all those places, God is warning the non-believer of their ultimate judgment when he pours out his wrath. But not for us. Not for us. God has not destined us for wrath. Period. We are in Christ. And those of us who are in Christ have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 10. In verse 9 and 10, we have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. 
who died for us. Boy, that's an amazing statement. He died for us. That's an entire sermon in and of itself. He died for us. He died for you. He died for me. He died in order to give us a righteousness that we could never attain on our own. He died so that we could be made right with God if we repent and believe. That's an amazing gift. Amazing gift. Romans 5, 8 and 9. It says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Amen to that. If you've repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, then you are a day person. Not destined for wrath, but destined for eternal glory. Jesus' death sets us apart from the night people. He died for us. He died for us. Look at verse 11. Just to conclude, verse 11. This is a very pastoral statement by the Apostle Paul. He says, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are also doing. They were already doing this. They were already encouraging one another and building up one another. And Paul's just encouraging them to keep encouraging one another. Very important. If there's someone who's anxious, whether in this church or another church or not even in any church, if there's someone that you know who's anxious, comfort them. If there are those who are weak in their faith, build them up. Come alongside them. There's times where I'm, I'm weak in my faith. I get anxious. I get discouraged, fearful. And so many people in this church have come alongside me and, and encouraged me and built me up. There's no reason for us to be fearful. There's no reason for us to be doubtful. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Our destiny is not wrath but eternal glory. I'm going to invite the worship team up now as we close. Our prayer team after our service is going to be to my left, and if you need prayer for anything, I encourage you to come ask them to pray for you. They would love to do that. And before we close, let me just say this. If you're a day person, be encouraged. Be encouraged that your destiny is not wrath, but in glory. And for the night people in your life, the night people that you know, maybe in your family, your friends, your coworkers, love them. Encourage them. Share the gospel with them. Tell them how much Jesus loves them, that he would die on the cross for their sins. Let them know that God so loves them that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've made us in today, people. Thank you that you've given us a righteousness that only you can give, a righteousness that we can't attain on our own. And Father, I just pray that we would be encouraged by that, that we would not be anxious knowing that our destiny is 
eternal glory in heaven with you. And so I pray that in the meantime, until that day comes, that we can conduct ourselves in a way that honors you and glorifies you with the the shield of faith and love and the hope of salvation. Thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.